Our second Bible reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and verses 2 to 11. And starting at verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Good morning. It's been a while since we've been here, but it's certainly good to be back with you all. Why don't we come to the Lord in prayer before we begin? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks. We thank you that you're a God who has condescended to our level to communicate with us that you haven't left us uh, without your revelation. We thank you now that we can gather together to look at your word and we pray that in everything we look at, your Holy Spirit would be illuminating our hearts and our minds and we would see you more clearly. We pray that everything we look at would cause us to love you more and as a result of that uh, be conformed to your image more clearly we pray these things in jesus name amen well it has been said before that nothing uh short of a whole bible can make a whole christian and while we might be quick to offer a hearty amen to that idea in practice too often we find ourselves operating much differently. How many of us tend to put all of our efforts and our energy into the final portion of a fairly big book? Many of us are more familiar with the New Testament than the Old and often for no other reason that there is an assumption it's called the Old Testament because it has passed its used-by date. Too many of us treat the Old Testament as though it has expired, as though it's irrelevant, as though it wasn't really written for us. After all, if I don't own an ox, why should I care about laws concerning oxen? Why would I waste my time learning how to treat a slave if I have no intention of ever owning one? 
Now, unfortunately, as a result of this mindset, the Old Testament is often avoided, especially those harder passages that make us blush, those that are presented by the world as cruel or unforgiving. What are we to do with those? Many have tried to dismiss them as though they're just reflective of the barbaric and uncivilised era from which they emerged. God was simply meeting the culture where it was at, or so we're told. But is this how Jesus and the apostles thought of God's law? Do they have this attitude? Do they demonstrate such dismissive contempt and even disdain for the Old Testament and its rules as we often see? Unfortunately, too often from Christians. Quite the opposite, in fact. Simply listen to how Paul describes the Old Testament law in Romans 7. He says, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. According to Jesus, every commandment of the law can be summed up in two, love and love. Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Love for God and love for neighbor is a summary of every commandment in the Old Testament. Here is Paul again in Romans 13, 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, in the New Testament, love is not some arbitrary sense of affirmation or positive vibes. It's not whatever we personally deem subjectively loving. God is love, John tells us. And if God is love, if God is love, then that means we don't get to define love any more than we get to define God. God defines himself and he defines himself as love and God defines love according to the apostles and Jesus in his word, in his revelation. That is exactly why our culture is obsessed with redefining love. They want to redefine God. It's a blatant rejection of God's word. It's the substitution of the true God for an idol that's made in the image of our sinful culture. In society today, love is no longer conformity to God's law. Love is the exact opposite. It's the rejection of God's law. And to say otherwise could cost you your family. It could cost you your friends your career, and in some places, it can cost you your freedom. 
So is it any wonder in this militantly hostile environment that we find ourselves in today that so many have backed away from the Old Testament? So many have backed away from God's definition of love. Isn't it easier for the self-preserving Christian to simply pretend that God's law is no longer relevant? God's law is, has, has passed its expiration date. Doesn't it seem safer to opt for a definition of love that is shaped more so by current social trends than by Scripture's own testimony? I mean, after all, isn't insisting on uh, strict obedience to God's law, isn't that the mark of legalistic Phariseeism? We don't want to identify with those characters of the gospel who were so vehemently opposed to Jesus, do we? Shouldn't we be more compassionate? Shouldn't we be more forgiving? Shouldn't we be more tolerant? Aren't these the fruits of Christianity? Shouldn't we be more like Jesus in John 8 when Jesus was confronted with a woman who was caught in adultery? Jesus didn't, insist, Jesus didn't insist on strict adherence to the law here, did he? He opted instead for compassion and forgiveness. Well, this, of course, is the go-to verse whenever questions about the relevance of God's law are raised. It's a popular story. It's one of the most popular stories, not just in John's gospel, but in the entire Bible. It's so popular, in fact, that rarely a Jesus film is made that it's not included in. But if you have your Bibles open with you there to John 8, you may have noticed something different about this section. In modern Bibles, it appears bracketed or footnoted, introduced with a heading, noting that the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel don't actually include this account. It's believed it was inserted uh, later on by, well, not by John, but by a scribe who had a copy of this additional story and likely didn't know where to put it. Now, it's important to note here that this section, this account, doesn't add anything new to our Bibles. It doesn't contradict anything in our Bibles, which is why modern translators have included it without any worry. There's only one other place in the New Testament where this happens, and it's right at the end of Mark's gospel. There you'll notice a similar thing with the brackets, the footnotes, which is a testament to the precision that our translators take in ensuring that our gospels, our scriptures, contain what was originally written by their authors. That said, it hasn't prevented people from effectively basing their entire understanding of the Old Testament law on this single incident alone. And so it's worth considering what this account actually tells us about Jesus and how he viewed God's law. So even if we begin with the assumption that this account ought to be included, we can get a better understanding of what the point of this story is. So what I hope to demonstrate here is that many Christians misunderstand the Old Testament because they misunderstand this account. They misunderstand this account because they're not familiar with the Old Testament to begin with. It is a vicious cycle. So it's worth considering what is going on here. 
Now, as early as chapter 5, we are told that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. But in order to do this, what they required was a sufficient charge that they could bring against him that would warrant a state-sanctioned execution. Understandably, in, in John 8, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees were searching for a charge that they could bring against him. And in verse 6, we're told that Jesus' opponents set out to test him. They wanted to trap him. So what was their test? The scribes and the Pharisees brought before Jesus a woman who had been caught in adultery. Setting the woman before Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? What they were appealing to here was a the commandment in Leviticus 20, verse 10, which states, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. So this was the trap. The trap was set. This was how they were going to manufacture a charge against Jesus. In their minds, Jesus couldn't possibly answer this question without incriminating himself one way or another. Here's why. Under Roman rule, the Jews weren't permitted to put anyone to death. This was their reason for bringing Jesus to Pontius Pilate. What did they say? It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And yet, what did God's law require? Israel was commanded by God to execute the adulterer. Do you see their trap? If Jesus upholds the law of Moses, he'll be in violation of the law of Rome. But if he upholds the law of Rome, he'll be in violation of the law of Moses. Whatever Jesus' answer is, the scribes will have their charge. Jesus will either be guilty of a crime against Caesar or he will prove himself guilty of blasphemy. Is it blasphemy or is it treason? They were really quite clever. It was a clever question. How would you answer in that situation? Any other man may have been stumped, but they were not up against any other man, were they? And it's evident by what happens next. At their challenge, we're told that Jesus stood up and he uttered what is perhaps his most famous phrase. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. When the scribes and the Pharisees heard this, what did they do? They all walked away one by one until only Jesus and the woman were left. Woman, where are they? Jesus said to the woman. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. So Jesus said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That was easy. He got out of that one pretty simply, dodged their challenge. He didn't even have to answer their question. Their trap failed. They walked away in shame. The question is why? 
Why did they walk away? Why did they forfeit? Why did they give up? Why did they leave? Now, it's often assumed that Jesus got himself out of this sticky situation by simply lowering the harsh and unforgiving standards of the law. He lowered the standards of God's law. Many have suggested that Jesus was here setting aside the law of Moses for a more compassionate way, for a more a loving approach to sin. He does this, we're told, by simply dismissing Leviticus 20 and then justifying his dismissal of Leviticus 20 by adding an unattainable condition to God's law that only those who are without sin should bother obeying. Is that really what's going on here? Are we supposed to think that the scribes and the Pharisees, those guys who had murderous hatred for Jesus, who wanted to bring a charge against him, were suddenly okay with disregarding God's law? Because after all, don't we all violate God's law in some way or another? Scribes and the Pharisees understood that sinlessness was not a prerequisite for obedience. In fact, the entire sacrificial system built into the law, presupposed that its adherents were with sin. What they understood was that the law commanded capital sentence for certain sins. Not all sins, and among those sins deemed a capital offence, was adultery. Adultery, like other sexual sins, threatened the family unit the most fundamental and necessary unit in society. Disrupt the family and you disrupt society. Disrupt society, you disrupt the nation. This isn't a serious sin in the eyes of our culture today, but it is in the eyes of God. So are we really to think that the scribes and the Pharisees walked away because they were suddenly convinced that obedience to God's law no longer mattered? This is the popular interpretation, but does it satisfy you? How often have we heard it said that Jesus was here setting aside the law of Moses to put forgiveness and grace in its place? Retellings of this account often present the scribes and the Pharisees as the villains in the story, and rightly so, but for what reason? For their obedience to the law, for their strict obedience to what the law demands. In contrast, of course, we have Jesus, who is kind and compassionate, willing to overlook the law's severe requirements, lower God's holy standard, and put in its place a new and a more loving approach to sin. Well, that might seem nice to our modern ears, but we don't interpret the Bible by what seems nice. The problem with this popular retelling is that it has the story entirely backwards. It's not the scribes and the Pharisees who are here strict adherence to the law. It's Jesus. It's not the scribes and the Pharisees who are preserving, maintaining, and upholding the law. It's Jesus. It's the scribes and the Pharisees who are deviating from God's law. These are those who are establishing a new standard of love. Now, you might ask, how is that possibly the case, given what we just read? Isn't it the scribes and the Pharisees who are clearly demanding the woman's death? Jesus is the one who's pardoning when the law is condemning, right? Well, this is 
why it is important for us to be whole Christians with whole Bibles. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't walk away because Jesus lowered the standard of the law. They walked away because Jesus exposed them for having lowered the standard of the law. It wasn't Jesus setting aside the law of Moses. The scribes and the Pharisees did this. And they did this by failing to meet the requirements of the very law that they were appealing to. So it's true, as they said, that Moses commanded Israel to stone such women. But that's not all Moses had to say on the matter. In this sense, a half-truth is a full lie. What the scribes and the Pharisees neglected to acknowledge was that the law prohibited anyone from being put to death without sufficient evidence that a crime had in fact been committed. This evidence included the testimony of at least two eyewitnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 5 and 6 states, you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Well, who's to say there were no eyewitnesses there? Perhaps the scribes and the Pharisees somehow came across this woman in the act. Surely they wouldn't have brought her before Jesus without the necessary evidence, right? Well, that's exactly what they did. And we know this because of Jesus' response. What does Jesus say again? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, we're told this is an example of Jesus setting aside God's law when, in fact, here, it's the exact opposite. Jesus is upholding God's law. How do we know this? Because in Deuteronomy 17, in the very next verse, the law stipulates that those who witness the crime are to do what? Those who witnessed the crime are to throw the first stone. Well, who did Jesus say was to throw the first stone? Let him who is without sin throw the first stone. In doing so, Jesus is appealing to Deuteronomy 17. He's exposing the scribes and the Pharisees, the supposed law keepers, for being in violation of the law themselves. There was no first stone because there was no eyewitness the absence of the stone meant the absence of sufficient witnesses. The absence of, su- absence of sufficient witnesses meant Jesus' opponents were guilty of breaking God's law. They were guilty because if a stone were to be thrown, it could only be thrown in defiance of God's law. If there were no legitimate witnesses willing to bring a charge against this woman, they could only rely on the testimony of a false witness. And in accordance with the law, to be exposed as a false witness is to sentence yourself to the same fate as your victim. Deuteronomy 19, if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and the rest shall hear and fear and never again commit any such evil among you. 
It's understandable now why the scribes and the Pharisees departed in shame. Yes, contrary to the popular interpretation of this passage, it's not a lesson in pious law-breaking on Jesus' part. The scribes and the Pharisees were not condemned here for being too strict with with God's law, but not strict enough. Jesus, not his opponents, was the great law keeper. Jesus said he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So why does that matter? It does matter. And it matters because the popular interpretation of this passage has caused many Christians to think that Jesus is at odds, at least in some part, with God's law. The popular interpretation would have Jesus setting aside the law of Moses for a love that is alien and even contrary to the very thing that Paul called holy, righteous, and good. But it gets even worse than that. If Jesus is here setting aside the law of Moses, what does that make him? Makes him a transgressor. A transgression is sin. As Hebrews 10, 28 testifies, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And here's the problem. If Jesus set aside the law, if he transgressed the law, if Jesus sinned at any point, how could he be considered a fit sacrificial substitute for our sins? How could he be regarded the spotless lamb of God, the second Adam who takes away the sin of the world if he himself is no better than the first Adam? But the testimony of the New Testament is clear. Jesus is without sin. That means he never violated God's law, not even in this instance. In fact, it was his strict obedience to the law that ended up sparing this woman's life. Jesus knew she was guilty. That's why he commanded her, stop sinning. The law condemned her. Her accusers lacked the necessary lawful grounds for warranting her execution. And it was only for the lack of willing eyewitnesses that her life was spared. Think of it for a moment from her perspective. Living in that time, in that place. Can you imagine living under God's law and risking so much for a moment of sin? I'm I'm sure she thought she was done for. What a foolish decision on the woman's part. Now, we don't know what happened to her after this account. The Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us one thing, that this was not the last time she was brought before Jesus in judgment. One day she will find herself in that situation again. And what should alarm each and every one of us is that someday we will find ourselves there too. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, so that each one of us may receive what is due 
for what he has done in the body, whether it is good or evil. At this time, there will not be a lack of witnesses. Two or three witnesses, while the triune God sees everything. Not only what we do openly with our hands, but what we do secretly in our hearts. You see, the law doesn't just condemn outward actions. It's concerned with the inner. Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If the law is about loving God, if the law is about loving your neighbour, then ultimately it's about your heart. It's about your heart. So that nothing done, even within, can be kept hidden from God. God is our witness. He judges the heart. He brings every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. No creature is hidden from his sight, says Hebrews 4, 13. All are naked and are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We can't hide our sins from him who sees all. The scribes and the Pharisees may not have had sufficient evidence to condemn the woman caught in adultery, but our accuser, the devil, certainly will. And if we are found guilty of sin, then we will be judged and we will be found deserving of death because the wages of sin is death. The law demands our blood. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3.10. That's you and that's me. So the question for each and every one of us is obvious. On what basis will we appear before Christ on the day that we are brought before him in judgment? We will be brought before him in judgment as surely as it is that we will all someday die because it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And what will our defence be? When we're brought before that throne, what will be our plea? Well, we're about to sing it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Goes on to say, because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The woman caught in adultery had no plea. She had no defence. Yet she was spared by Jesus, not because he set aside the law, but because he upheld it. It was precisely because Jesus kept the law that we now can sing we have a strong and perfect plea. For the law states that without the shedding of blood, there is no pardoning of sin. So on what basis will you appear before Christ? On the day that you're brought before him in judgment, there are only two choices before us. 
as Martin Luther said, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Now choose what you want. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son who came into this world, who obeyed your laws perfectly because we could not. We thank you that he fulfilled the law and all its demands. Thank you that he died on the cross for the sake of sinners. We thank you by trusting in him, his righteousness, his obedience is imputed to us and our sins and our wickedness die with him on the cross. Father, we ask that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, to love him more fully. We thank you for all the blessings that you give us in life, the most being that we can know and love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.